Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's live stream. It's a pleasure to fill in for Mark this month, live from New York City, where the spirit of Halloween is in the air. And this seems quite fitting, actually, because even though markets are back around all-time highs, it appears that there are still enough issues out there to spook investors, too. So we will help sort through these issues today with my partners here. For example, uh, in commodity markets, fossil fuel prices have been soaring, reaching record highs in gas and coal with spillovers into industrial commodities. In labor markets, companies are struggling to find workers, which is pushing up service sector wages. In product markets, supply chain constraints, many related to the pandemic, are affected sectors from cars to clothing. So these issues are weighing on growth and raising inflation expectations. But the pandemic has shown us that markets can look past challenging periods, provided that they're not permanent. So the big question is whether this situation is transitory or something longer lasting that reflects a fundamental shift toward a new stagflationary economic regime. As always, I'm joined by CIO experts from around the world to discuss these issues with you. As a reminder, uh, we will take questions uh, if we have time at the end, and you can use the question button on this web page to email your questions in. All right, so let's start with the energy market. I'm joined by Dominic Schneider, who is the head of foreign exchange and commodities within our global uh, CIO team. So Dominic, you know, we've seen coal and natural gas prices hit record highs with crude oil rallying to multiple year highs. Can you maybe walk us through what's really driving energy prices higher? Thank you, Solit. Uh, I think there is a confluence of factors that really drove prices higher. We can't really pinpoint into one, but let me give you the four key reasons that we look at. First of all, bottom line, we had very strong demand uh, that drove the higher prices. That's number one. We came out of obviously the recession and everybody's buying goods. So that was one of the key factors. Then we had weather. So one of factors that was both on the supply and demand side. If you think about if you don't have enough wind challenges in Europe or if heating is because warmer temperatures you need more uh, basically to cool down your building. That was a factor that affected the demand side. And then we have more structural issues also at work. If you look, for example, in China, uh, I'm here in Hong Kong, basically where policies were trying to limit coal production. And there was a mismatch between electricity consumption and, and coal output. And last but not least, we have seen underinvestment. So bottom line where this drove us, falling inventory, if you look at the next slide, to give you a little bit of a color what happened in in natural gas. Um, that has actually come down quite a fair bit in terms of inventories. And in order to balance the market, you know, things have just had to rise quite rapidly. Um, it also happened simultaneously. I think that's important to, to think about. Well, suddenly Europe was in shortage and you weren't going to the LNG market. China was also there trying to make sure it can secure enough LNG, enough uh, natural gas. So competition for fossil fuel drove things to record prices. Okay, so if we then maybe look ahead to the next year or so, um, do you expect high prices to persist into next year? Uh, maybe not just in energy, um, but also commodities just in general. 
So I think when it comes to the energy side, we need to maybe separate it. Coal and gas prices are currently at unsustainable levels. So if you look at our forecast, we do think prices should level off actually quite a fair bit, looking at a 30% decline. But that still means they're going to be higher where we were when you compare it, uh, let's say, at the beginning of this year. And then on the oil side, the story is we're going to travel more. So the market balance is still going to be tight if OPEC continues just to increase output at 400,000 barrels per day. So here we're looking at 90 to 85 here, prices going to stay elevated. So not really here a leveling off taking place. And, and when it comes to the industrial metals, um, here we look at copper pricing heading towards $12,000 a ton. Some of the supply issues gone away on production. And I fear that with inventories declining, it's just going to see higher prices, even though some soft softness is there in China. Okay, um, so if we maybe extend our, you know, uh, make our horizon a little bit longer, looking out longer term, do you think these challenges that we're seeing from energy prices be transitory or are we seeing signs that energy could become a more substantial constraint on global growth? If you look at the capacity that we have, for example, on the crude oil side, I think we should also see that there's a cap to prices. So some of the particularly strong impact on the CPI should fade as we look into, let's say, the end of uh, next year. So I think that element gives me confidence that there's not necessarily a structural push here. So I think that's something to, to recognize. And as I said as well, for coal and, and natural gas, prices are way too high at this point in time in order for basically the industry to handle. So, and Russia can produce more, China can also lift more coal, maybe unwanted, but still the ability here to meet demand is, is given. So I think things are gonna level off definitely. What we need to think about going forward, um, the energy transition maybe needs a little bit more coordination. I think that's one of the key factors and we can't just have a very small margin of error. And, and that means maybe prices are a little bit higher, but versus where we are today, I wouldn't be worried that it's a structural phenomenon that's going to be with us and impacting us on a regular basis systematically over the next, uh, would say, decade. Right. So, I mean, I guess it looks like the transition to net zero carbon uh, might be a source of uh, energy market volatility in your head, but not necessarily really uh, constrained growth. Uh, thank you, Dominic, Dominic, for this. Um, so, you know, supply issues are not just confined to energy or product markets. Uh, another major issue is the difficulties companies have um, trying to find workers as economies reopen. I'm joined by Temis, Temis Douglas, uh from London, who is leading our chief investment office in Europe, Middle East and Africa. Uh, Temis, I want to ask you, you know, the labor markets can appear confusing. Sitting here in the United States, uh, we have record job openings, record numbers quitting their jobs, uh, but unemployment still uh, above pre-pandemic levels. Is the same happening globally? And can you maybe explain, you know, what's really driving this? Uh, hi, Solida. Hi, everybody. Yes, uh, you can argue it really looks like a confusing uh, picture. And uh, I can tell you, we're facing a very similar picture in the UK, 
to some degree, maybe not to the same extent in Europe, but also in, in countries like Australia, you can hear stories where the, as the country is coming out of the COVID restrictions, they're facing a big uh, challenge in trying to find people in the leisure sector, for example. A lot of people, after two years being out of a, a job, they uh, moved somewhere else. Uh, and when these companies try to find uh, employees, they're struggling with it. Um, so what's driving that? And, um, and I think just let's take the US, uh, which is one of the biggest labor markets. Uh, what we've seen there is up until recently, a number of these people been getting government aid. Um, in, in addition, they managed to build some uh, useful uh, surplus savings uh, and now, as they're reconsidering what they want to do next, they might take their time to get back to work. And in some cases, there might be that their partner is working and they want to take a bit longer with the children or the schools are not fully back on stream and they need to organize child uh, childcare. So there might be a number of reasons that uh, basically are keeping some of these people uh, back from joining the workforce at this stage. But as you said, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, employment currently versus pre-COVID, uh, or at least on paper, there are 5 million people in the US, uh, uh, or 5 million jobs short now relative to pre-COVID. Um, so clearly, uh, that shortage we've seen, we think is uh, temporary and, and it's going to be resolved to give it time. Um, in the UK, we have very similar situation. In the UK, we may facing some additional uh, issues through because of Brexit. Maybe the flow of labor is not as free as it used to be uh, between Europe and, and the UK. Uh, but we've seen it to some degree, as I said, in Europe as well. In some cases, we might need to wait until some of the uh, unemployed have been retrained because maybe the jobs they had pre-COVID, uh, maybe they moved on and they need to uh, try and fill in some other jobs. But clearly there is um, uh, a factor, in some ways not dissimilar to what uh, Dominic was saying earlier on, we had a very sharp increase in demand and the supply needs to be adjusted. Um, thank you for that perspective, Demis, on the key drivers of this labor market situation. In fact, I was in a meeting with one of our clients recently who's in the service sector in the restaurant business. And, you know, he was asking me, you know, it's impossible for us to find where where's everybody is going and all the all the workers and it's certainly not becoming uber drivers because it's also very hard to find um you know uber drivers as well so it'd be interesting to see if everybody not everybody but a decent number of the people who might have left will will come back um, and maybe the causes aside temis um do you expect this situation to ease in the months ahead Yes, we think so. Um, it's just difficult to believe that um, all those people that have been that uh, are not employed currently, they left employment forever. Uh, if you look at unemployment rates, if you look at participation rates, uh, there's just still a fair amount of spare capacity out there. And uh, this would need some time to be resolved as people decide to obviously work through some of the excess uh, savings they had, uh, sort out whatever they need, whether they need to be retrained. Uh, but we definitely think that this is a temporary situation. Also, by the way, we need to remember that um, higher high, uh, wages are also adding another incentive 
for these people that are currently out of a job to join the workforce again. So yes, we think this is temporary and it's got to work its way through and we've got to see uh, most probably more people uh, uh, joining the workforce and unemployment rate coming down. And as a result, is the pressure on wage uh, inflation as well? Yeah, so you know, one concern uh, around labor markets and specifically the wage pressures um, is of course around the impact to monetary policy. Um, you know, are central banks, uh, from your perspective, worried enough? You think about wage pressures and energy prices to a point where it could cause them to hike rates, maybe more prematurely. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they were they watching inflation and wage pressures very closely because that's uh, that's basically part of their uh, mandate to for price stability. We have to remember though also that one of the things that changed uh, changed through COVID is that uh, central banks' mandate is been expanded in the U.S. to include unemployment, uh, in Europe uh, also to uh, increase uh, stability in the market just generally in the economy. Uh, so it's not just price stability. But going back to uh, would that cause uh, central banks to increase rates prematurely? Um, we don't think so. All the comments we're getting out of all the central banks, with maybe the exception of Bank of England, is that they all see uh, the pressure on inflation uh, caused by factors that are transitory. So they do expect uh, the, the spike in inflation to be temporary and as a result, uh, inflation uh, to normalize over time. As I said, Bank of England is slightly uh, different. They seem to be prepared to move on uh, earlier. But if we listen comments from Lacarte, from ECB, uh, they clearly seen uh, the need for interest rates uh, increases far in the in the future, and Chairman Powell obviously repeatedly said uh, that uh, they think this is is a, a temporary spike in inflation, and they see, don't see urgency in increasing interest rates. Great, thank you, Thomas. Um, let's bring Dominic back in now. Uh, you know, not everyone shares um, this view, and stagflation is clearly a hot topic right now with comparisons being made to 1970s. So Dominic, you know, as well as the views you've shared on energy commodities and we discussed around labor, are there other reasons why uh, you don't believe we're heading to stagflation? So I think, first of all, we need to understand the kind of um, impulse that we have seen in terms of higher commodity prices in the first place. Now, I brought you a, a chart here, just a little bit illustrate. I mean, we started the 70s with an oil price around $2 per barrel, and we ended up with $34. So that's 20x. I, I don't think we can, we're going to be in that kind of backdrop uh, over the next uh, 10 years. So the energy story is different. Also, the energy in terms of cost as a share of, let's say, GDP has come down as well. So it is really less important in general, the, the energy costs. So I think that's number one. Two, Thames are already alluding to that if you look at, for example, the participation rate, it's uh, 62%. And that means there is still 
lack in, in the labor market. So these are the two main reasons. Uh, I still think we, we need, we're not going to look for stagflation. We'd rather look for reflation still as a key story. But then there are other things. I think about the, the global economy or the economy in general. We are more globalized than in the 70s, I would say. And so I think that helps us also to manage some of the, I would say, inflationary pressures that we have. And most importantly, if you think about the central banks, central banks today, although they obviously want to have a certain inflation, I mean, they're more keen to keep inflation somewhere between two and three percent. So a greater focus compared to the 70s on price stability is something that also needs to be taken into consideration. And then we have other things like we have less union, for example, we do have more dynamic wages and price setting. And I think all these factors help to make sure that the supply side can react and make sure that we not end up in a stagflationary environment. However, I want to say something which is important. The transition to zero carbon comes with a higher price tag. I think we need to think about infrastructure increase is not going to be free. It needs to be finance capex, but that doesn't mean uh, stagflation. That means maybe healthy reflation, something that we want and is particularly good for our positions in the market. Great, thank you. You know, I, I guess uh, if we had to go back a few decades, uh, we would all much prefer to go back to the 90s economy when we had sustained growth above 2%, uh, falling inflation, and strong job growth. And I also remember 19s being a lot of fun. So, um, you know, I'd like to see more comparisons to that. Um, well, you know, this concludes the public section of our live stream. Uh, before we move on to our investment recommendations, uh, we must say goodbye to those joining us from LinkedIn. Uh, the rest of this conversation, including our research recommendations, is reserved for our clients. Thank you all um, and see you soon. Okay, now let's dive into the client portion of our call. Uh, please note that while we want to be as concrete as possible in the ideas we provide in this call, because this is a global call and there are various country level restrictions on providing investment advice, we will need to keep things pretty high level. And so we'll be talking uh, at asset classes and asset allocation uh, level going forward. Now, with the current issues still appearing more temporary than structural, we believe equity markets will continue to move higher. Global growth remains strong. Supply chain challenges should recede into 2022 and corporate earnings should continue to grow. This month, we have added Eurozone equities uh, to our preferences in this environment. Um, Temis, uh, I'll start with you since you live and breathe uh, Europe every day. Why do you think Eurozone equities outperform now? Uh, yes, thanks, Solida. Five reasons for that. Um, obviously, uh, if we look at the economic backdrop, it's one of strong economic growth. This year and next year, this is this is the background. Uh, in that environment, you'd expect uh, the cyclical markets to do well. If we look at the next slide, um, Europe or, or Eurozone uh, market underperformed or uh, didn't perform as well as some of the other cyclical markets. So uh, that's one, the starting point. So there's some catch up potential there. Uh, the second point, if you look at uh, the um, valuation of Eurozone equities, especially if you look at it from the income point of view, uh, we have very attractive dividend yield, 2.8% dividend yield relative to government bonds, relative to what yield you can get out there. It really looks very attractive. 
the next reason is around uh, the economic growth and, and how does Eurozone compare to the rest of the world. Uh, this is one of those rare cases, and, and it's good to have it once in a while, where Eurozone actually um, is, uh, is doing, actually for the, the, the current quarters, Eurozone is growing faster than any other uh, major uh, economic region. And if we look at next year, is one of the few regions that will see accelerated economic growth relative, relative to this year. So the good news still ahead of us. Uh, the fourth reason, uh, the, because of the, uh, the market mix, uh, we, uh, Eurozone has much bigger exposure to uh, industrials. Uh, and other sectors that benefit from infrastru infrastructure spending. Dominic mentioned earlier on uh, infrastructure spending around uh, net zero, but just generally uh, governments will be spending more, including the German government post the elections. Uh, and also we're going to have a pickup in industrial production as the supply chain interruptions are being resolved. And again, all of those should be benefiting uh, the Eurozone uh, um, market and the Eurozone companies. Uh, and the last point is, if you look at the Eurozone equities, they tend to correlate positively with ri rising inflation and also uh, with value out performance because of the skew we have in Europe. We have quite a lot of value. And within that, if, we, if you think about the sectors we like, we like energy, uh, like uh, Dominic may, gave some reasons behind it. We like uh, financials, which is a value sector uh, driven by all these uh, uh, drivers and also materials. Those are the sectors we like the most. Obviously, there's some risks. If we uh, have a resurgence of COVID cases, that, and, and that were to lead to uh, lockdowns, that would be a negative, although we don't expect it, uh, or if indeed um, uh, these, all these cost um, increases continue to go up right through next year and maybe that have an impact on the margin. But clearly we think Eurozone uh, is looking really interesting right now. Uh, thank you, Thomas. You already talked about some of the specific sectors that we like, but I, I want to ask you, outside of the Eurozone, um, you know, what other countries do we think can outperform? And if you wanted to dive into any other sectors, um, you know, feel free to do so as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, actually, at the, the sectors we like in Europe, we also like globally. We like energy, we like financials, we like, uh, and also uh, both in Europe and, and uh, globally, we like healthcare. And the reason behind that is valuation is attractive. Um, and uh, tends to perform well when ISM peaks and we have a, a decline in ISM. But uh, so as the, the growth peaks and starts to slope down, healthcare does well. Uh, and uh, also it, it the, the future of healthcare performance is driven by some really strong structural reasons around aging, uh, population, uh, increase in uh, oncology and some of the other factors. So those are the sectors we like globally. In terms of regions, the other, the other country we like is Japan, to some degree for some similar reasons to Europe because uh, it's a more cyclical market, uh, but also you have a couple of other additional inputs there. We have a new government which is promising additional fiscal spending. And also Japan has been one of the countries that has been lagging in terms of the impact of COVID and opening up uh, and uh, clearly the economy should be picking up as the economy uh, opens up post-COVID and increasing vaccinations. Uh, other areas we like, um, green tech, uh, very important, especially with COP26, that will be very much in the news, but clearly here we see structurally a lot of attractive opportunities that, around that area. Uh, and digital assets, uh, 
beneficiaries of um, uh, digital ledger technology, uh, companies that are enablers and be benefit from that. Uh, and obviously clients should also be looking at some of the long-term terms, uh, themes around smart mobility, security, cybersecurity, especially and automation and robotics. On the bond side, I just highlight one thing or two things, the US senior loans, uh, we like it because of the attractive uh, yield, but also you get protected against because they have floating rates uh, if interest rates go up, you don't get impacted uh, negatively. And Asian high yield, which we think built, uh, uh, if you look at valuation, uh, uh, it really uh, has a lot of bad news already in the price. Great, thank you. Uh, Dominic, back to you. Um, so energy sector exposure uh, helps us benefit from you know, current high oil uh, or natural gas prices. What's your um, long-term strategy, the CIO long-term strategy to deal with energy and commodity market volatility? So I think if you look at the trajectory in terms of energy consumption, I think the underlying story is that we're going to see, you know, a very decent growth in terms of energy demand. Now, how are we going to satisfy this one? If you go, for example, to the next slide, you see a quite sharp increase in, in renewable. And I think that's something to, to think about. I mean, we, we're not going to see in energy consumption mid to high single digit growth, but you, what you're going to see is basically this high single digit growth in renewable, in some cases, double digit. So I think in order to you know benefit from that shift, which will happen, and Temis alluded to with regard to COP26, making sure that you are on this growing train is, is definitely something to, to think about when it comes to your strategy uh, with regard to your portfolio. That's number one. Number two, you obviously could say, I want to hedge myself directly if in terms of uh, exposure. So uh, the crude oil market or the futures are still uh, in backwardation, so downward slope. If prices don't move, you're probably going to get 10% return. Where are you going to get these kind of returns? So backwardated curve, still something interesting for those who can tolerate the volatility. For those who can't, then maybe the, the energy equities still is a very good place to be in terms of, you know, as a form of, of protecting your, your, your assets. The other areas to think about, not just thinking about direct exposure or the equity side, but you can also think about the currency world, for example. Terms of trade shifts are quite powerful and, and tend to be supportive of currencies which have basically commodities and, uh, and energy. So, those who actually receive right now a lot of cash flow and basically we need to pay those who don't have uh, the energy. That would mean thinking about the Canadian dollar, thinking about um, the, the Norwegian crown, for example. You could even think about if you have the ability to, to weather the risks, uh, the Russian ruble or the Australian dollar. These Some of these commodity currencies having some form of exposure would make sense in a diversified portfolio that basically tries to protect yourself against these spikes in, in commodity prices. So I think that would be my approach at this point to really manage the kind of um, volatility that we have seen recently. Great. Uh, thank you, Dominic. And also, I can't let you go without, without talking a little bit about the dollar. You've already talked about some of our preferences for, for currencies here around commodities. Um, but let's maybe spend a minute on dollars. We, we don't normally see a stronger dollar when commodity prices are higher, but this month we've also moved the US dollar to most preferred status within our asset allocation. And of course the Swiss franc to least preferred. Um, what's the thinking behind uh, this move on, on currencies? 
So if you look at commodities and the dollar, the reason why things look a little bit different this time around is it's not necessarily just the demand story, it's also supply story. And I think it will impact obviously uh, some of these economies that do not have um, natural resources. And the US is at the end of the day, um, pretty much shielded given its ability to export natural gas and coal and, and some of the, the products, all products. So I think that is something to take into consideration. Now, why are we, very positive on the dollar, uh, very simple. I mean, yes, global growth uh, is not expected to really level off massively, but it's likely to peak. And historically, when global growth finds a peak, even though if things are quite high versus trend, that has been a supportive factor. And uh, we're gonna get the, the Fed normalization monetary policy. And we think that kind of backdrop should lead us to a situation where real interest rate expectations uh, real rates, you look at the tips, here for, uh, tips yield, for example, they're quite negative and we think that's not going to last as the Fed normalizes policy and historically that kind of shift in the real interest rate expectation is quite supportive of the dollar. So these two factors I think will give us a quite a bit of support uh, in 2022. Now why do we uh, are negative on the Swiss franc. Well, we still think the SMB will keep interest rates uh, basically negative territory. And in a world where basically central bank, like basically uh, the Fed, start to normalize monetary policy, that divergence in monetary policy should weigh on the, on the Swiss franc. And again, we are not looking in terms of a, a sell-off or any sharp declining growth, but some moderation. And I think in that kind of backdrop, the dollar can do actually well, because normally you would argue that basically if things start to deteriorate, the Swiss franc should do well, but we're not kind in that kind of um, backdrop. We are probably in the very uh, optimal situation where things slow, but not to a degree where the market is getting spooked. So these are some of the drivers that give us confidence that uh, basically you're going to see the dollar Swiss steadily trending higher. Thank you for uh, walking us through that. Um, maybe let's just make, take a quick step back and uh, look at what all this means for our positioning. Uh, so our base case is a positive one, but we recognize that we're faced with uh, considerable uncertainty. If inflation provides stickier than we expect, uh, central banks might get nervous. A cold winter maybe could produce fresh spikes in energy prices, um, and a winter wave of COVID infections could hamper reopening. Um, so, Temis, uh, you know, my last question is to you. We talked a lot about, you know, energy prices and and um, and, and labor market and central bank, and of course, uh, you talked to us through our preferences, financials, energy, eurozone, Japan, all of that. I guess all of this backdrop um, with equities at record highs and bond yields low, how do you recommend investors diversify their portfolios? Because that's the million dollar question on a lot of people's mind. Yeah, thanks, Alida. And, uh, it's a very good question because uh, you always need to also think of the, the risk side of the equation. Uh, how can uh, investors diversify? Um, uh, two suggestions, private markets for people that can include uh, some illiquidity in their portfolios. Uh, private markets uh, over time delivered very strong returns. Um, and uh, with actually reasonably low volatility. Uh, and the other one is through hedge funds. Um, hedge funds 
over time can give you pretty reasonable returns with low volatility and low cor correlation to the market. And if we can look at a couple of slides down, uh, hedge fund strategies also protect you against the downside is the very slide, the last slide in the deck. Uh, and you can see the drawdown uh, from hedge funds relative to the markets. And, and you can see they, they provide pretty good um, uh, protection against the drawdown. So those are the two suggestions, how to diversify Solita and back to you. Great, thank you. Um, uh, so I, we are almost about time, but I think I'm gonna take um, maybe um, one or two questions uh, from, from clients. We have uh, a few coming in now. Um, one question here is, given all the inflationary pressures uh, we have, why hasn't gold, precious metals performed better? Uh, Dominic, maybe I can pass this to you. So yeah, first of all, we have seen a stronger dollar. Uh, historically, there's a quite strong relationship between gold and the dollar, so it's number one. And people look what happened back then in the taper in 2013, when basically we had material outflows on the ETF side, so people are concerned as policy normalizes. And as I mentioned before, this real rate expectation tips, you're getting less negative. Historically, that's quite powerful to weigh on uh, on the gold price so these elements keep people shying away even though uh, inflation is very very high and you would think normally a real rates is a place to be and i think still forward looking as policies normalize as interest rates go up that's going to weigh on gold we're looking at a thousand seven hundred dollar an ounce and even below in 2022 so still probably not the time to engage at this point Great, thank you. And then the last question um, here from one of our clients is around financials. Uh, Ten minutes, maybe I'll you know kind of direct this to you. Uh, the question is: Are financials still financials still worth buying? Um, they seem to be pricing in the expected interest rate move. Uh, but given um, the comments we made earlier uh, on the temporary nature of the inflation, uh, isn't there? a high likelihood of policy um, mistake here. So basically our call on financials. Thanks, Alida. Um, financials actually still look very attractive and, and justified for a minute talk about the European uh, financials, for example. Valuations are very, very attractive, 0 0.75 times book. You're getting 6%, nearly 6% dividend yield in an environment where you cannot find uh, dividend. And these dividends are pretty secure. Uh, the, the banks rebuild capital over time. They have very strong balance sheets. They they likely to pay out some of these uh, excess capital capital uh, in terms of dividends. And uh, most probably we still see in, uh, in the next uh, few months more festivity in the new yield curve rather than the flattening of the yield curve as the market becomes more comfortable that the, the central banks actually, uh, especially we see signs of inflation um, coming down and you can argue maybe we've seen a little bit of that in the US, but uh, if, as, as uh, the market gets convinced that the central banks would take their time before they increase interest rates, we most probably see steepening of the yield curve. And again, if that's positive for financials, but even away from the steepening yield curve, I do think fundamentals for financials are actually very positive, um, more 
lending. Uh, some of the back book is being repriced for people that want to know the details um, because the, the, the companies have been facing a lot of headwinds. All of that is now adjusted. The new loans are written at better margins. So they should be looking at better growth uh, and better margins going forward at a very attractive valuation. Great, thank you. Um, so we're at um, almost 11.35 here in New York time. Um, we wish we could take more questions. Uh, but we're out of time. Thank you all for joining us. Um, you know, while there is a lot of uncertainty, you can rest assured that we will be closely tracking all the moving parts and breaking down what it means for markets to help you steer your portfolios in the right direction. Um, thank you, Temis and Dominic, for joining me uh, today. Have a great rest of your day, and we look forward to hosting you again next month. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.